Hello, it's Tuesday, January the 4th, 2022, and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming out, I'm talking to you about New Year's resolutions and why it doesn't matter actually if you break them. Also, Sir Tony Blair, do you think he should have a knighthood? I'm speaking to a former minister who says absolutely not. With one million people isolating because of COVID, is it time to cut the isolation period? Not from 10 to 7, as the days of the government have done so far, but to 5, which is what they're doing in parts of the United States. But first, it's a huge day for Prince Andrew in the United States, where a judge is being urged to dismiss the civil lawsuit against him by his accuser, Virginia Roberts, now Dufre. A crunch day for Prince Andrew. His lawyers will today urge a US judge to dismiss the civil sexual assault lawsuit brought against him by Virginia Roberts, now Dufre. A settlement between Mrs Dufre and the late financier Jeffrey Epstein will be examined at the hearing. Lawyers for the Duke of York claim the terms of the settlement dating back to 2009 release him from any liability. She was paid $500,000, it seems, to uh, effectively not give evidence against anybody else in the case. But does it stand up to scrutiny? Is it enforceable? Mark Stevens is a partner at the law firm Howard Kennedy and joins me now. Mark, he's, his team is pitching an awful lot on this. I'm told he didn't even know about this agreement between Jeffrey Epstein and Virginia Roberts, as she was then, now Dufre, when the agreement was struck uh, in 2009. Well, that may well be right, although um, the question here is what was the agreement for? And essentially, the agreement was to buy off her claims against yeah. Jeffrey Epstein and any other potential defendants. So anyone that in November 2009 she could have sued um, anywhere in the world, then that settlement effectively says that she won't do so. She won't bring proceedings anywhere else. And so the issue really is now for her lawyers to show in New York today whether or not um, uh, or why she shouldn't be bound by this agreement. Effectively, the burden is on Virginia Joffrey. And I have to say, you know, shorn of the moral opprobrium, which many will feel associated with, you know, in essence, somebody getting out on a technicality without actually confronting the substance or the merits of this case, as Prince Andrew would if he wins. But essentially, I think um, he's got the better part of this argument. I think he's got a 60% chance of winning either today or perhaps more likely on appeal. Um, And that means she's only got a 40% chance. There are, you know, it's not clear cut one way or another. It's not slam dunk. But it's pretty clear from the words in the agreement that it doesn't matter that he knew or didn't know about it. And it was an attempt to settle all potential claims that Virginia Joffrey had as of 2009. Now, of course, we know that in her claim against Jeffrey Epstein, she had made mention of a royal, and in the private proceedings, we understand that she names Prince Andrew. And so in those circumstances, he may not have known about it, but she did. And so as a consequence, she was carefully advised by good quality lawyers uh, that she was being bought off here Uh, for all claims against Epstein and anyone else who was a potential defendant. This was a one-time settlement. 
interesting because I remember I remember remember reading one report about this, uh, Mark, which suggested um, it, com- it could come down to a question of jurisdiction because this agreement was struck between Epstein and Virginia Dufresne lawyers in the United States. Prince Andrew, she alleges on one occasion, presumably at the home of Ghislaine Maxwell, who's now a convicted paedophile herself, um, uh, that the, 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 the sexual abuse took place in her home in London and that therefore may not be covered by that agreement struck in 2009 in the United States. In your view, would that hold any, would, would that be, have any relevance? No, I don't think that holds any water at all. Right. So um, essentially it's uh, any um, claim that she may have, uh, whether state, federal, you know, wherever in the world it took place in the common law. So it doesn't matter where she was suing, she's foregoing the right to sue anybody. And essentially, she could have brought proceedings uh, in the UK, um, but she didn't do so, and the statute of limitations was run. And indeed, she allowed the statute of limitations to run on her case in New York. But there was a special uh, piece of legislation in New York which gave people a year in which to renew their claims. Because as we know, many people who suffer abuse don't confront it immediately. And it takes some years to do so. Mm. And so the American legislature allowed Virginia Joffrey to bring this uh, action essentially um, by special statute. So otherwise, this case was compromised. So I think there's been a lot of personal distaste for the way in which this is being argued. I think many will see it as a technicality. Yeah. Uh, and of course, even if the case is thrown out, it doesn't mean that uh, Prince Andrew is innocent. It right. just means that she's debarred from bringing proceedings. But I do think that he has the better of the legal arguments here. I think, you know, there's a real possibility that he could get out of this case. I think the public opprobrium will stick to him as Mm. a a stain, an indelible stain for years to come. Uh, But I do think, you know, looking at it as a lawyer, just looking at the black and white on the page, I think she's got a hard road to hoe here. Just finally on that, it's interesting because you've been an experienced lawyer for many, many years, Mark. Um, her legal team, when they took on this case, they must have been aware, surely, about the agreement between her and Epstein and the $500,000 she took, the money she took to, effect- to effectively buy her silence. Did they not realise the significance of it or to think they thought, well, to hell, we'll try and win the case anyway? And that, let's face it, in the process, it's caused enormous damage already to the reputation of Prince Andrew. Yeah, look, I think they knew about this. Uh, David Boyce, Virginia Joffrey's lawyer, is uh, an incredibly smart, uh, accomplished lawyer. Um, But his approach to this was to keep this secret. So she objected to this document being made available to Prince Andrew's legal team. And of course, once she did have to hand it over by order of the judge who thought it was relevant, Um, uh, it, of course, has founded the basis of this application today. And I think, you know, it's arguable both ways. I can see how Virginia Joffrey's uh, lawyers are going to say that this was very limited in the way in which it was done or it was void because it was too wide. Um, But in truth, I think you can see the sting of this agreement is essentially 
to protect uh, against um, future claims from Virginia Joffrey. Doesn't protect prevent anyone else suing, um, but Virginia Joffrey has compromised her action or, or her rights to action uh, on the basis of this document as I see it. Uh, and I appreciate that that's not um, what many people will want to hear, mm. but it is, I think, the right legal analysis. Fascinating analysis, as always, from you. That's Mark Stevens, who's a partner at the law firm Howard Kennedy. And, of course, on this podcast, we will bring you up to date on what that court decides uh, in the United States. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pierce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and our video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. So at least a million Britons have found themselves in isolation because of the Omicron variant, which has spread quickly over Christmas. Widespread worker absences are badly affecting the NHS, which has reported 110,000 staff members in England were off sick on New Year's Eve. It's also affected public transport and many other industries. In the NHS, many staff are said to be working flat out because the NHS is always under more pressure at this time of year in any case. Joining me now is Dr Kishan Badalia, who is a frontline NHS doctor and has worked on government campaigns about COVID and the vaccine. Dr Badalia, there's a lot of talk that the answer to the uh, problems over isolation and the fact that the NHS is really suffering through staff shortages is to change the isolation period again. We've gone down from 10 to 7 days. What about going down from 7 to 5 days, which is what's happened in parts of the United States? That's correct. There's, there's a lot of discussion about this. Um, and at present, the, the science and the information I've looked at suggests that 7 days is the safest period because if we reduce it further, people may still be infectious. I'm yet to see evidence which is strong. Um, in terms of being as cautious as possible, the longer the period we, we allow, um, the less likely we're going to see cases increasing. But, on the, but I, I get that. But, but, if, but if we carry on making people isolate for seven days, the, toler- the strain on the NHS could become even more intolerable as more workers are forced to stay home, doctor. I completely agree with you. Um, I'm, ex- I'm experiencing those shortages myself. Hospitals are trying to put in more doctors to cover more shifts because we're seeing a lot more staff of sick, not just doctors, but also nurses, security, porters, staff across the board. Um, we, I, I agree the, the best thing to do is to... Uh, we have to find a balance between whether we reduce that time but obviously we increase the risk of people catching covid and um, we'll see increased transmission now the reassuring thing is is that the patients who are being admitted tend to have less severe infections so this does support the case of reducing that period of time but this would be up to the, to the ministers to decide based on the uh, the rates that they're seeing across the uk uh, yeah, and we uh, we know also, don't we, Dr. Badalia, that thus far most of the research, most of the data is suggesting, hence why the people going into hospital are not as sick as they were perhaps un- with the Delta variant, that it's attacking the throat rather than attacking the lungs and requiring people to be on ventilators. Well, throughout the pandemic, we've seen people who present in, in various different ways. In my experience, from the beginning, I was seeing patients who had, say, a sore, just a sore throat or runny nose all the way up to somebody who's struggling to breathe and or coughing up blood. There's an absolute spectrum. Right. Now, more of what we are seeing in hospitals, and a lot of my colleagues are seeing, are patients who have got 
um, milder illnesses like those sore throats, and we're seeing less of the severe um, lower, lower respiratory tract infections that were concerning us um, earlier on. Um, the uh, how worried are you? You're working in the NHS. You're a frontline NHS doctor yourself. You're seeing the pressure. How worried are you about the impact on your colleagues uh, of the, the the sheer the sheer pace that they're having to maintain because of the increase in the number of infections? Interestingly, I'm, I'm more reassured this year than I was last year. This time last year, I, I was incredibly worried because cases were going up with hospital admissions and seeing the patients incredibly unwell on the wards, and that was a this time last year, I was redeployed to support the intensive care unit. Now, a year later, we are, the conversations are happening right now, but no plans in my trust have been made to actually make those changes yet, which is a, which is a reassuring thing. My friends and my colleagues and myself, the doctors, the nurses, and staff across the trust I work in um, are feeling more confident that we will be able to handle this, that the vaccine seems to be working, and we're we're, man- we're able to manage things right now. We're just concerned how things could progress over the next few weeks. Can I ask you just finally, we know that the Prime Minister resisted the pressure from some to bring in more restrictions in England, in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. There are more onerous restrictions relating to COVID. I'm not asking you to make to talk about the politics here, but do yeah. you think, looking back, that perhaps the decision that was taken about England has proved to be the right one? My my belief is that the, the the public have received all the information. They have access to all the numbers and the stats. They understand the the risk of the virus. There's been good educational materials online, for example, on the NHS website, which outline that some can have mild symptoms, some have no symptoms whatsoever, and some will unfortunately have severe infections and could pass away from this. Now that we've got this information and that it's very very likely that we're going to have to live with COVID for the foreseeable future, it's in the public's hands to be able to make that decision. The UK Prime Minister is actually giving us that ability to make a decision. And I think that's quite a good thing because that's what we're going to have to do for the next, for the next few years whilst COVID is around and probably will exist for the rest of our lives. Yeah, I'm just going to sneak in one more question, if you don't mind, Dr. Badalia. Um, there are figures which show still around 8% or 7.5% of NHS staff have not been vaccinated. Does that disappoint you? I think these people do still need some education and reassurance. I can understand that there is a lot of anxiety around a vaccine that has um, come to surface quite quickly. Uh, and I think people have their own individual reasons for this. It could be because uh, they, they've been traumatised by having COVID itself in the past or reactions to vaccines in the past. Um, and I think it is important that people do have the, the, the choice as to whether they have it or not. I hope that enough people do get the vaccines that we can benefit from herd immunity in the future. Um, but I, I, I'm still optimistic that we can still reduce that number from 8, 8% further down. All right, that's Dr. Kishan Badalia, a frontline NHS doctor and advisor to the government on COVID and the vaccine. Thanks for joining us. So visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and much more. If you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boy Pierce. So far, more than half a million people have signed a petition calling for Tony Blair's knighthood to be rescinded. The petition criticises the former Prime Minister for his role in the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan and claim he's the least deserving person of any public honour. The honour 
of course, was made uh, on the personal recommendation of Her Majesty the Queen. Joining me now to talk about this is Norman Baker. He was a minister in the coalition government, a former Lib Dem MP, and he's been a long-standing critic of the UK honour system. Mr Baker, my piece in the mail today is pretty forthright and trenchant and says, not least because of the disgraceful way he behaved over Iraq, he does not deserve to be given any form of knighthood, let alone the most senior uh, knighthood in the honour system. What say you? I think it's extraordinary, to be honest with you, that he's been uh, given this honour. Clearly, it, was a, a, it would have been a very controversial matter, and the Queen ought to realise that in advance. I have to say that um, she appears to have been tone deaf on this matter. The number of petition signatures that have amassed already demonstrates the public mood. The fact is that Tony Blair was probably lucky not to have been... Uh, prosecuted for, for war crimes as a consequence of his role in Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq in particular. So uh, it is it is tone deaf, it, un, it is uh, not welcome, and uh, he really ought to turn it down, I think, and recognise it. Uh, he doesn't deserve that honour. He um, it, it, to, to give him his full title, he's been appointed by the Queen, a knight companion of the most noble order of the Garter, the oldest and most senior British order of chivalry. Um, uh, Mr Baker, the point I made was the Chilcot report, when it eventually reported into the reasons we went to war in Iraq back in 2016, conclude, made a number of devastating conclusions it said that the prime minister had not exhausted the options for a peaceful solution to the uh, dispute with uh, saddam hussein that the case over uh, weapons of mass destruction had been exaggerated there was the so-called dodgy dossier which was sexed up and then of course there is the death of the government scientist uh, david kelly which you've written an entire book about uh, yes. all of these are in my view uh, huge reasons about against why tony blair should ever be given a, such a such an honor absolutely and look i mean the fact of the matter is that uh, george bush wanted to go to war with iraq irrespective of any evidence that, that would justify that and tony blair simply went along with him in order to stay in uh, it is good books, and it's as simple as that. And that meant uh, dodgy dossiers. It meant uh, corrupting uh, official intelligence uh, with the help of Alistair Campbell. It, it meant lying to Parliament uh, and putting a case to Parliament that he must have known was, was false. And indeed, the, um, the memo, which I quote in my book um, from Matthew Ryland, who came back from the States uh, the year before uh, the Iraq war, uh, stated that uh, Iraq was less of a threat than, uh, than other places such as North Korea. So there's no justification whatsoever for, the, for, this, for this war. And a lot of MPs who assumed that the Prime Minister of the day would always tell the truth when it came to a matter such as serious as war were proved to be wrong. And uh, Tony Blair did immense damage, not just to himself, but to the reputation of Parliament uh, and, and democracy generally. And uh, therefore, it's most peculiar, to be honest with you, to put it gently, that... Uh, he should be offered his honour. But, you know, the Order of the Garter was first created in 1348 by um, King Edward III. And it was created at a time when half the population, literally half the population, were dying from the Black Death. That was his priorities at the time. And 700 years later, it's still being used to uh, offer patronage and to uh, reward those based on their position in society rather than anything they've done to, to merit the award. You could also argue, couldn't you, Mr. Baker, the Middle East has been a in, has been fermenting. It's been in turmoil probably ever since the Gulf War in 2003, the rise of the Islamic State, the rise of terrorism on the shores of Britain and the rest of Europe can all be traced back to the war in Iraq for which there was no United Nations resolution and for yeah. which the Chilcot report effectively accused Blair of lying over and effectively accused him of being a warmonger. 
Well, I think he, he was lying. As I said, he lied to Parliament. I think he was a warmonger in the sense that he went along with whatever George Bush wanted. I'm with you, George, I think he said to him. Yes, he, he did. The exact quote. He did. Um, so, you know, that, that is, that is his, his historical record. He did quite a lot of good things in government, Tony Blair, but they're all outweighed and, and shadowed by, by this catastrophic error and discourtesy towards Parliament and dishonesty towards the electorate when it came to the Iraq war. That can't be forgotten. Just finally, Mr Baker, um, have you ever been offered a knighthood or a, an OBE or a CBE or anything like that? And if you have, I'd love to know what your response was. Uh, well, I haven't, Andrew, I have to right. say. I, I, was, uh, I, was con- I was inducted into the Privy Council, uh, right. which was slightly bizarre in itself. Yeah. But I've made my opposition to honours very well known. Um, not, on, not in principle. I think in principle people should receive honours, but I think they should be decided democratically by an independent body not used as baubles to hand out to, to people who uh, are, are favourites of the establishment of the day. Well, that was Norman Baker, former minister, and who is defiantly not ennobled by the honour system. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, it's time for our regular city update, the first of the year, of course, the new year, with Ruth Sunderland, who's business editor at the Daily Mail. Ruth, before we talk about the main the main subject, um, stock market pound doing pretty well as we go into 2022. Absolutely. Happy New Year, Andrew. And and it is a bit of a happy new year um, to start off with on the stock market. So the pound hit a two year high against the euro and the, the FTSE was um, going higher um, as well. And, and this this is all really based on um, the fact that investors think that the Omicron variant is going to be milder and that it may be hitting a bit of a plateau in, in London. So there's a bit of optimism around that. Um, and we've had a, a couple of quite decent economic figures as well. So we've seen that um, manufacturing data has shown a bit of growth in um, in December. And also customers have been splashing out on their credit cards, £1.2 billion in November. So it's quite a lot of, a lot of spending. Um, I have to put a little note of caution in there, though. Some of that is a bit historic. And also, um, we do have a, still have a huge national debt burden. And if inflation continues to go up and with interest rates nudging up a little bit as well, we, it is going to cost us more in interest to service that national debt. So that's going to be the equivalent of £1,000 per person next year. So, you know, it's quite a lot of money. So we can't, we can't be too complacent about it all. Absolutely not. Now, big story in the United States. She was the woman who seemed to have the Midas touch. Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of a company called Theranos, convicted of fraud. Who is she, uh, Ruth, and what, what, what's happened to her in America? So Elizabeth Holmes is an incredibly um, glamorous and seemingly high-achieving businesswoman um, in America. She was one of almost like a poster girl for technology and technology investment. Um, Her company, Theranos, Theranos, I'm not quite sure how how you pronounce it, to be honest with you, Andrew, but um, she, she claimed that it could detect diseases from just a few little drops of blood now obviously this would be revolutionary if that were the case but it appears not to have been so she's been found guilty of conspiracy to commit fraud against investors along with three charges of wire fraud now she's denied all of those charges she's been found guilty and they carry a maximum prison term of 20 years each so she's only 37 she's just had her first baby last year um 
but you know that that's a long time that um you know, she could be she could be looking at there um she was found not guilty on four charges um which is something but you know the, these charges that she has been found guilty with are, are quite draconian it's very interesting i think andrew the contrast between the way that people are treated in the u.s if they've committed a financial crime and the way that they're treated here where you'll remember in the banking crisis you know nobody nothing happened to anybody really no. um it's a big contrast fred goodwin lost his knighthood but but no criminal charges uh she of course could be spending pretty much almost perhaps yeah. the rest of her life in prison she, she 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 could um you know it's a lot and and last year one of the people who passed away was um bernie madoff who yeah, you'll remember he was sentenced to 150 years in prison um and he you know he died in in prison the, in north carolina that was the great ponzi scheme wasn't it it was that was a huge ponzi scheme um and you know very some very famous people they're no respecters of, of persons in the states so martha stewart she was another yes, who that's right. spent time in in prison admittedly in her case it was five months in in, in a prison in um west virginia and then i think she did another five under sort of house arrest on a on a tag presumably so that was a bit more lenient but um much more um draconian and punitive regime over there for for, for people in in this situation who are found guilty of of fraud um interestingly a chap called mike lynch who people would probably remember he was the founder of autonomy um he's still waiting to hear what the decision is going to be on extradition to the u.s um, he faces charges over there relating to the takeover of autonomy by Hewlett-Packard, and he could be looking at some hard time in America as, as well if it goes, if, if it all goes against him. So, um, you know, really, really different approach, as you say, Fred Goodwin. <laughs> he was virtually the only person to have any punishment, um, and that was the stripping of a, of a knighthood. Um, yeah. He still walked away with a huge pension. Certainly did. He certainly did. That's um, Ruth Sunderland, who is, of course, the business editor at the Daily Mail. Thanks as ever for joining us. So, have you made a New Year's resolution? January, of course, is the time when millions of us will pledge to lose weight, save money, dry January, or learn perhaps a new skill. And unfortunately, January or perhaps even February can often be the time when millions of us give up on that resolution so here to help us with some tips on how to stick to those resolutions is the confidence and mindset coach Hattie McAndrews Hattie I don't know what is in your view I don't know what most of us pledge to do in January it's probably to get rid of some of the Christmas paunch or perhaps to do dry January but we all know don't we by the middle of the month most of us have given up all hope on it yes I think that's that's pretty accurate to say I think definitely the most common ones are losing weight, um, starting to save money, taking up a new exercise. And I think what tends to happen is we set ourselves these really big, um, quite overwhelming goals with no idea how we're going to achieve them or what it actually is going to look like on a daily day, day to day basis. And so we come into the new year all optimistic thinking, right, I'm going to lose loads of weight. I'm going to get really fit, really healthy. And then, like you say, it kind of fades away. And then come the end of January, February, we've sort of forgotten all about that. And we say, OK, I'll start, I'll, you know, I'll pick it up again later. Yeah. So um, you say the saying no is probably the most liberating and freeing resolution to live by. What do you mean by that? 
So what I mean by saying no is really learning how to protect your own time, your energy, um, stop signing up for things that you don't want to do, whether that's seeing people or committing to extra things at work or, you know, committing to things at your kid's school. The more that you learn to say no, the more time you have to really focus on yourself and look at the things that you want to achieve and you want to do, hence making room for any um, goals you want to achieve or resolutions you set yourself up for. Yeah. Now, you also give some interesting advice here. Learn how to be happy alone, because if you can Mm -hmm. be content alone, uh, if you master that skill, um, you're not then going to feel you've got to rush around doing those other things. But how do you master the art of being alone if you don't like being alone? I think um, the biggest the biggest thing here is to before you look at mastering it, it's thinking, okay, what's one really small sustainable step that I can take? What's one thing I can do today or this week to help you start to feel a little bit more comfortable with doing things alone? You know, some people are incredibly independent and love to be alone all the time, and some people are the polar opposite. And so it's about finding something that works for you and thinking, okay, what's, what is that thing I can do? When am I going to do it? Taking that first step and then really just noticing how it feels and, you know, how it impacts you to start finding that independence again. I so say you give you give some pretty practical advice about how to get used to being alone. And, and that advice is write a list of things you enjoy doing alone, whether they're big or small, whether it's watching a new TV series or doing the weekly shop. Exactly. Yeah. So it's really starting to get those ideas onto a piece of paper and like you said, some of, those, some of those things are really small. It's watching an episode alone. It's filling up the car with petrol. It's doing your shop. It's going out for coffee by yourself. It's, it's once you look at that list and you think, okay, what's the least scary thing here? What's, what's one thing that I can go and do this afternoon or I can do this weekend that's going to help me start to become more comfortable with being alone? And as you get used to doing it and you, you start ticking things off your list, you, you can build up to bigger and more adventurous things if you will um to really help you to to learn how to love being on your own not just survive being alone yeah and 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 the other thing i i I like the idea of it appeals to me buy less shop sustainably Mm -hmm. what we just buy less food or buy less clothes or or just generally buy less what do you mean i think it's really it's, it's an approach to generally how we shop you know one thing that i think we all found during the pandemic and the lockdown is that we have so much stuff and it's something that a lot of us spend so much time clearing out our clutter that we'd gathered up and, um, you know, freeing ourselves from all the things we have lying around. And it's really changed our mindset to, to shopping and it's, and it's food shopping, it's clothes shopping, it's, um, you know, buying things for the house, it's whatever we need. We don't need as much as we think we do. And I think really reining that in and having a more conscious approach to what we're buying and where we're buying from you know it's looking at their sustainability qualities it's looking at what the produce we buy where is it being sourced from what impact is that having on the environment it's really starting to be more conscious i think about what we consume um, and what we allow into our homes 
Well, I'm going to have to make that, start making that list, Hattie, aren't I? <laughs> yes, you are. Please do. Get your pen and paper out. I will, I will. And I've already, I'm just talking to you. I normally do, try and do dry January, and then I get myself into a terrible lather, when halfway through I end up thinking, oh, God, I've just had a glass of red wine. I forgot I was doing dry January. And, then I, <laughs> and it's just ridiculous. And, then it, and the whole thing then unravels. Completely, and then you feel guilty. I do, and you're annoyed with yourself. And I like am. you say, then it's a spiral of, oh, you know, how did I forget, or why did I set this resolution? Yeah, and it's not, it's not productive to anyone. So, one thing I always say when you look about, sorry, when you start to look at setting those resolutions, is really try and get clear on your motivation for why you're setting them. You know, when you say you want to do die January, why is that? What motivated you to do that? Yeah, because I probably think I probably had too many too many glasses of wine over the Christmas and New Year, and um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, and it's good for the waistline. But I'll well, just do a bit more exactly. exercise. Exactly. There's other ways. If you're, um, you know, if it's the waistline that you can take on a new diet or take on new exercise, there's so many different ways you can make those changes. Exactly. And perhaps if dry January isn't for you, then that's okay. That's exactly. Something else. Very good, Hattie. You, you've inspired me. You've inspired me. That's, I'm pleased. That's Hattie, that's Hattie McAndrews, who's a confidence and mindset coach, uh, who's written a fascinating piece on how you can stick to resolutions. Well, that's all we've got time for today, and it's good to be back, by the way. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I am Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening. Happy New Year, too. And good night.